0: Today's lesson is the Lord's Prayer. And to prepare for this lesson, I drew upon four sources. The first is a Unity online class called Jesus' Teachings in the Bible. The entire course is the Lord's Prayer. And when I took it, I said, This is a good lesson for someday, and today's that day. Second is Emmett Fox's Sermon on the Mount. Third, Sermon on the Mount according to Vedanta. And fourth, your Hope of Glory, the Unity Classic by Elizabeth Sand Turner. Of course, they all talk about the Lord's Prayer. But before I get into the lesson, I want to share with you this contemplative thought, which came to my attention this week while reading a book uh, called Integral Christianity, which uh, is a very interesting book. And I want to share with you next time when I do a lesson that book. It's really nice. And f- for now, I want to point out this one observation, which the book mentions. As I have said before, there are many things I love about unity, and um, in particular two. One, it, it has re- reconciled my Christian upbringing with uh, my world-centric view of, the, of, of mankind. It helped me do that very well. And the second it, is that unity allows for a lot of latitude in its teaching. And I've always thought of that as a good thing, but uh, sometimes I guess even a good thing maybe is a little bit too much. Now, Uh, The author suggests some of us new thoughters may be just a little guilty of that. Uh, Because as it it relates to spiritual study, there should be a balance between learning a lot of different things and focusing on one. The the author draws upon a beautiful analogy. He says to imagine there's a river flowing under the surface of our lives, something like the river in the book of Isaiah or something. we're all trying to tap into this river. That's what we're trying to do. That's why we come to church. He says but that by not picking a path, what we are doing, in effect, is drilling a bunch of small little wells everywhere instead of de- concentrating on one deep well. Now, I found that illustration kind of enlightening, kind of a Zen proverb-type thing. And as a musician, I would compare it to trying to learn a lot of different instruments, but not really mastering one. Now, granted, it is a good thing to learn a lot of instruments, and it's a good thing to learn a lot of different paths, but it's a great thing to master one of them. So the point is, unity in Christianity is a beautiful path, and most of us don't really know that much about it. And so a part of the attempt today is, is to get a deeper version, a deeper view of the Lord's prayer. So let me we start with that. The first major point about the Lord's Prayer is that it is without a doubt, the most single and the, the single most important and most quoted scripture in the New Testament. As we all know, the various Christian denominations do not agree on many things, a lot of things. <laughs> but without exception, we all recite the, the Lord's Prayer. Its simplicity and its profundity, it's unparalleled. Emmett Fox points out. The great prayer is a compact formula for the development of the soul and it is a complete system of theology and metaphysics and I'm guessing you probably never thought of it that way. The Lord's prayer appears only in two of the gospels Matthew 6:9 and Luke 11:2. And for review purposes I went back and saw in King James version and the New International version and interestingly of the four None of them are exactly the same. And I say that only to remind you of the influence of a man and authors in, in the Bible. The one that seems the most commonly uh, used seems to be Matthew's King James Version. And it was written somewhere around 80 CE, common era, about 50 years after Jesus. The second major point about the Lord Prayer is that it is, is in seven clauses. Now, that's an interesting number because Um, As you know, that is a very, very, uh, something special about that number. We have seven seas, uh, seven continents, seven days in a week, seven notes in a musical scale, seven chakras. This week I came across a few more. In Catholic, we we have seven sacraments, seven gifts of the Spirit. The book of Revelation is packed with sevens. But as truth students, what we understand about the number seven is that it represents a completion, a cycle. In practical use, we often find an eighth clause added. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. But although this is an excellent affirmation, it's not part of the prayer. It was added later. I checked the copy of the international version I have, and it's not in there at all. Biblical scholars agree it is part. it was not part of the original text. Fox notes, the seven clauses are put together with the utmost care in perfect order and sequence, and they contain everything that is necessary for the nourishment of the soul. Let's begin with the first clause, our father. Fox says, this simple statement in itself constitutes a definite and complete system of theology. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, my religion is summed up in the first two words Of the Lord's Prayer. Let's see what these two gentlemen mean. First, the clause establishes a relationship between God and man, as that as a parent and a child, metaphorically, of course. It also cuts out any possibility that the deity could be the relentless and cruel tyrant often depicted by theology. The truth is most parents are good parents, and whatever our shortcomings are, When it comes to parenting, we do everything necessary to protect and care for our children. Our love for them is unconditional. The point is, if we, as apparently less than perfect beings, behave in this manner when it comes to our children, then how could God do otherwise? God is love, and any reference otherwise is simply incorrect. That's all there is to it. The second fundamental point of the first clause is that it establishes a relationship among all men. The clause reads, our father, not mine, not yours, our, everybody's. It affirms we are all equal in the eyes of God. Jesus exemplified this by not distinguishing between the Jews and the Gentiles or the Romans or the Sumerians. He taught and related to everyone tax collectors and prostitutes, considered at the time the bottom of the barrel. As I like to say, it's got to be about everyone. And Jesus made it clear that it is. Second clause, which art in heaven. This clause serves to establish the nature of God. That's a philosophical question. What is the nature of God? It is God's nature to be in heaven. That is to say, to be in the realm of mind, of idea. As we have learned, the I am the Christ is the archetypal idea, meaning the idea that contains all ideas. It is pure being. It is here in infinite and eternal mind that our God, our Father, dwells. This represents the transcendent nature of God. and the next lesson, we'll talk more about Transcendent nature of God. Conversely, it is the nature of man to be the expression of the idea, to be in the realm of form. God, divine mind, is cause, and man, effect, is manifestation. Each has its place in the grand scheme of things. If it helps, think of it as a difference between one part of the body and another, for example, the head and the hands. They are different, yet they are part of the one. Both are indispensable to the whole. However, although they are one, they are not one in the same. This is an interesting paradox. Unity's version of the Trinity is mind idea expression. Michael said it last week. It is natural for mind to have ideas and it is equally natural for ideas to seek expression. Mind, idea, expression are one, but not one and the same. We sing in Catholic Church, we are many parts, we are all one body. Important to reiterate, they are separate, I'm sorry, they are not separate, they are different. And I read somewhere, and it was one of those little aha moments that said, differentiation is not separation. Take H2O for example. Physical, something we can make a relationship to. Water, ice, and steam are all the same thing, but they're in different form, in different states. Sometimes I think nature's trying to teach us something. But we just open up our minds. Maybe we, you know, we'd see these kind of things. Third clause, hallowed be thy name. In the Bible, the name of something means the essential nature or character of that thing. Here it says God's name is hallowed. What does hallowed mean? It means holy, whole, wholesome, heal, or healed. In other words, complete and perfect. If we replace the word hallowed accordingly, then we get oneness, wholeness, be thy name, be thy nature. Makes perfect sense. Taken a step further, it is clear that anything that comes from wholeness must also be whole as well. The Bible is clear that a fountain cannot produce both sweet and bitter water. So by implication, we too are both perfect and whole. In plain English, perfection can only produce perfection. Charles Fillmore points this out. God only creates in spirit, which we understand as in his image, in his likeness. As noted earlier, the prayer is unfolding into a complete system of theology and metaphysics. Again, you've probably never thought of it that way, but you are now. (laughs) Fourth clause, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Early on in unity, I learned that in the Aramaic, the correct translation is thy kingdom is done, thy will is done. Thy kingdom is come, I'm sorry. (laughs) It is written in the present tense. This is consistent with God's work being complete, as it says in Ecclesiastes, and with the idea that only the present exists. Voltaire said, God is not a weathercock, who can be changed by the wind? It is we who need to change our focus to that place, or more correctly, to that state of consciousness. The catch with things being whole and perfect, and I've come to understand this, is that they are so in potential. It's our call, the ball is in our court. It won't happen until you're ready to make it happen. So it's in potential. The universe is waiting for you. That's what freedom and being a co-creator means. It's the many worlds theory in quantum physics, if you're all familiar with that. Elizabeth Sand Turner in The Hope of Glory writes, Heaven is not confined to man's consciousness. It is everywhere present. When man's mind and body are in harmonious relation to divine ideas, his true thoughts flow into the realm of manifestation and bring forth the kingdom in the earth as in heaven. Emmett Fox says, thy kingdom comes means it is our duty to be ever occupied in establishing the kingdom of God on earth. It is our work to bring more and more of God's ideas into concrete manifestation So not only is it possible to align the physical with the spiritual, it is our duty to to do so. Remember the end of Genesis 2? Man and woman and the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And everything was good. Everything was good until we, through our choices, changed that. Fifth clause. Give us this day our daily bread. The unity course regarding The Lord's Prayer notes, Because we are children of a loving Father, we are entitled to expect that God will provide us with everything that we need. In Luke, it clearly states, It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, not part of the kingdom, the entire thing. Imagine that. Everything is at your disposal and potential. Everything. It's amazing stuff. The class says, to this end, we require such things as food, clothing, shelter, means of travel, books, and on and on. But all this falls under the heading of bread. Bread doesn't mean just food, it means all the things we need to have a happy, healthy, free, and harmonious life. Maybe it's in the translation, but for me, the clause gives us this day hints of a petition. And as we true students know, We don't have to ask for anything. The offer stands. What we really need to do, the book says, is simply to claim it. Scripture reminds that the birds do not worry about what to eat or their needs. God takes care of them. So why do we worry about our needs? And I think you know the answer to that is because we bought into the concept of limitation. As a final note, the material says, another reason for the food or bread symbol is because... It is essentially something we must do for ourselves. No one can assimilate food for another. Spiritually, this means no one can take that journey for you. No one can describe the sunset to you. You need to experience it for yourself. And that's why we're here, for that experience. The sixth clause, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In reading the material, this clause is referred to as the turning point of the prayer. Hitherto, the prayer has talked about the nature of God, the nature of man, the relationship of God to man, of man to man as brothers, the abundance of the universe, and the concept that we're whole and complete. It's talked a lot about a lot of things. Now, we get to the part where all of a sudden you say, well, if everything is good, what's the problem? How do we live the life that we were designed to live? And the answer lies in this clause. It is through forgiveness. The non-forgiveness of sins, of trespasses, the book book notes, is the central problem of life. Sin, as we know in unity, is error perception. It is a sense of separation rooted in selfishness. This, This belief in separation is the arch sin. This is why it's written that whatever judgment we judge, we shall be judged, because we are not separate, and in effect, our actions towards others, we judge ourselves. Going back to the body analogy, if you cut your arm, the entire body bleeds, not not just the arm. The prayer very clearly makes the declaration that we are trapped in the inescapable position that we cannot demand our own release before we have released our brother. I think I need to say that again. We are trapped in the inescapable position that we cannot demand our own release before we have released our brother. The beauty is setting others free, meaning setting yourself free. Non-forgiveness, it's baggage and it holds us down. I like the Zen non-approach uh, attachment thing because it, it reminds me of this, you know? That in the old Budweiser commercial. Remember that? Let it go, Louis. That was... <laughs> I always think about that, you know? Let it go, Louis. It was a funny commercial. <laughs> clause 7. Um, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Regarding this passage, M.F. Fox says, this clause has probably caused more difficulty than any other part of the prayer. I am certain we have all had the same difficulty in understanding why God would want to lead us into temptation in the first place. First of all, we know God is not a micromanager, so the obvious is to struggle with another interpretation of these words. Admittedly, letting go of the negative experience is a very difficult task to do. The German philosopher Leibniz described this world as the best possible one God could created, could have created based on the idea of conflict. Oof. Now, this is roughly, but the idea is that in order for us to take leaps and bounds in our spiritual journey, conflict is necessary because it is a time of conflict that we develop the most. It is in time of, of adversity that people bring forth their highest self in order to resolve the problem at hand. We see this all the time in calamities. People come together in a oneness that they otherwise would not do. From that angle, you may say, well, this is one possible explanation for the manifestation of bad things. Earth is a school, and like any school, we have to learn lessons. The book of Job describes just such a scenario. And yet, in the end, Job rose above all adversity and became ever the better as a result of it. Now, this is just Leibniz, it's an idea, so. As I write this today, we are forecast to have thunderstorms that day, and I think, once again, nature's trying to teach me something. It must bring nourishing water to the plants, and this is one way of doing it. I like to think that I can rise above the need for adversity in order to learn. That is my goal, anyway. We've talked about it at at, uh, at book class, we say, you know, when are we going to stop having to have these negative things just so we can learn a lesson? You know, seriously, I mean, how many, how many times are we going to stick our hand in the fire before we think, I get it, it's hot, you know, at some point? <laughs> so am I saying God uh, sends problems to us? No. In, in, new, in new thought, we kind of think that we send things to ourselves through the what we call mind action concept. Personally, the entire prayer makes perfect sense, except for this one part, which I will continue to digest as I get new perspectives on it. I just got one this week from Reverend Ed Townley, who does that uh, in the Unity Online. There's so much wonderful information. This Reverend Ed Townley does one called "Interpret This," and he interprets metaphysical uh, scripture. And I think I've mentioned that to you before. He says that the Aramaic phrase is "Don't let us remain in temptation." And the word temptation means unripeness. Now, this implies help us to evolve into a ripe state of being. I like this a whole lot better. And I think it's about time that we matured. And I think that's why we come here, because we're trying to to do that. Finally, at the prayer ends with the affirmation, once again, added much later, for thine is the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. And all of God's children said, Amen. I said, and all of God's children said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, all blessings.